Hey there, my name is Sean, and this is Grit True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story, and the people who craft and tell them. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories, true stories, personal stories, great stories. We are nearing the end of season number three, dedicated to grit talks and the best of. And for this week and next, we are going back one year to an open mic we had, remembering and honoring 9-11. Four stories each, total of eight stories over the two episodes. It may not be for everybody, I understand that, but I hope if you want to hear some compelling stories about that day and what unfolded, I hope you listen. Special thanks to our storytellers. You will hear them in this order without interruption. Francesca Sobre, Tracy Starin, Anne-Mary Mullane, and Alina Beth Kay. Thank you for crafting these and joining me one year ago to tell them these stories matter. Check the show notes for all things upcoming, including this Sunday's Suicide Noted. Personal stories by some badass attempt survivors. It's going to be a really good show about a really important topic. Okay, Francesca and Mary, Tracy and Elena, Beth, let's dive in. We're living in Madrid, Spain. We wanted to immerse our three children in a foreign culture to learn Spanish. So my husband, Pep, took a year-long appointment overseeing an abroad program for the University of Madrid. Our arrival to Madrid is fraught with a lot of questions of how, where, why. Our six-year-old takes things in his stride, but his older brother and sister, ages 13 and 16, met us with plenty of resistance. My husband and I are quick to arrive at answers, to calm their worries. Trust, I say, you'll be okay. We've been living in Madrid for about two months, already adjusted to having the large family meal in the middle of the day, rather than at the end of it. It's about three o'clock in the afternoon. We've just finished eating when the phone rings. It's my husband's secretary telling him to turn on the television. He looks at me puzzled. Mommin says I need to turn on the TV. As my husband goes to turn on the TV, I look outside and notice that a large crowd is gathering at the neighborhood bar that is across the street from our apartment. Is there a soccer game going on? I wonder. And then I notice that the city is quiet. The crowd across the street isn't shouting. In fact, it is silent. Even the constant roar of traffic seems stilled. The TV is on. There is the World Trade Center. What is happening that we're looking at the twin towers? And then I see the smoke, the gaping hole, an explosion, a fire. And then we see the second plane go into the second tower. The news is coming at us in panicked English, but spoken over in English in Spanish. So I, I don't understand exactly. My two older children just stare at the TV. We watch in disbelief as people jump out of windows. I don't really need to hear the news to know what is happening. At the same time, I, I have no idea. Could this really be happening? My youngest asks, what movie is this? I tuck him under my arm and whisper, it's not a movie, darling. 
My husband and I exchange worried looks. We are foreigners and the world has suddenly shifted. What would this event mean to our lives here in Madrid, back in the States? Who do we know that could have been in the towers? Oh my God, the 60 American students that Pep is responsible for, what will all this mean to them? All of us glued to the news, me picking out the English and trying to put it together, my husband occasionally translating to fill in the gaps. Her children have as many questions as we do and all of them are unanswerable. I don't know, I keep saying, we'll have to see. No one really knows. I felt a little bit like a, a scene in the Titanic where a young woman is doing her best to reassure her children that everything will be fine, even though she knows the ship is sinking. It is a long day of disbelief. I longed for community, a place I could go to to find comfort in the comfort of others who also felt untethered. But I am an American on foreign soil. What happens after the end of the world? Every time I look out the window of our apartment, I am struck by the quiet, the collective gray faces of each passerby looking alone and scared. I tuck my children into bed, even my 16-year-old, brushing my hand across her hair, hoping that the gesture that always comforted her when she was a baby would still work. I go to the chores of the evening to calm myself, bringing in the laundry that hangs on a line between my apartment and the one across. And there is my neighbor, whom I have only ever exchanged a nod, each of us tending to our laundry. She looks at me and starts to cry. Lo siento, senora, lo siento. I am sorry. I nod. Tears stream down my face. Gracias, senora. Thank you. We continue collecting our laundry off the line, both of us silently crying. The unanswered questions of the day ring in my head. The idea of trust, the idea of everything being okay, like the Twin Towers, has crumbled. But for a brief moment, I am tethered to the world by a laundry line. I was taking advantage of an empty house to get some work done. I was in graduate school and a little bit behind, and I was determined not to turn on the television or surf the internet until I got something accomplished. The phone rang. It was my mother-in-law. She said she heard what happened and she wanted to make sure we were okay. And I said, we were fine. And it was nothing to worry about. And I got her off the phone pretty quickly. And I thought just for a second, I wonder how she even heard about the fender bender we had on Saturday. Why was she calling about it early on a Tuesday morning? But I didn't dwell on it that long. And I went back to doing some schoolwork. And then about an hour later, I went to make a phone call and I, I couldn't use the phone. My phone didn't work. And I knew I could get calls. Uh, so I sent an email to my, my friend who lived upstairs, who was at her office in Midtown Manhattan. And I said to her, can you give me a call and see if my phone works? Because I, I can't dial out. 
And she called me almost immediately. And with tears in her voice, she said, she said, turn on the television. And uh, I did. And I watched the whole world crumble into bits. Over the next days and weeks in my little neighborhood in Queens, in Maspeth, Queens, that few of you have heard of and even fewer of you have ever been to, um, we're about five miles away from ground zero, far enough to be safe, but close enough that we could smell it. And my little blue collar neighborhood 20 years ago before we were touched by gentrification uh, was mostly occupied by civil servants, people who made New York City run, people who worked for the MTA, sanitation workers and cops. And that's what their lives were for weeks, for months. Our little neighborhood firehouse, Squad 288, was one of the first on the scene. And 19 firefighters from our house were lost, the most of any house in New York City. And so when people joke around and talk about how Queens isn't really part of New York City, I'd, I'd like to mention that fact to them. Over the next few weeks and months, fear and anger and worry and sadness hung in the air like the soot that blew over from the still smoldering site that we could see from our park in the neighborhood, from high points in the park where we used to be able to see the top of the towers poking out against the horizon. And I used to have these philosophical conversations with my friend who lived upstairs who was Catholic and it bothered her so much that I was an atheist. And I would point to everything that we saw on television. I would say, how can you look at the death and the destruction and the horror and still say that there's a God? And she would point to the first responders and the volunteers and all the donations and she would say, how can you look at all the people who are helping and say that there's not? Like a lot of other people, we didn't know what to think and we didn't know if it was going to happen again. And we were scared and we were sad and nobody didn't know somebody or know of somebody who went in and didn't come out. There was a neighbor, there was a friend, there was a cousin, there was a neighbor's son, there was someone you went to high school with. The standard greeting for someone that you would run into at the bodega at the bus stop went from being, how you doing, to, is everybody okay? And it took weeks, months, maybe years, if ever, for life to go back to some semblance of normal. And every September 11th, there was some kind of gathering at the park, some kind of vigil. And in 2011, for the 10th anniversary, there was going to be an official commemorative event. And my husband and I went and we thought this is going to be, they're going to, they'll do something lovely. There'll be flowers. There'll be maybe a plaque, maybe a tree. There'll be remembrances of the people who were lost. They'll talk about how so many people donated socks and toothbrushes and towels and blankets that they had to make Shea Stadium, the donation drop-off point. And so many people came that we were in this crush of a crowd that we couldn't even leave if we wanted to. And then there was a line of local politicians at the front and a big television screen, a big projection screen that they brought in. We thought these speeches will be inspirational. And one by one, each local politician made insipid, empty, pointless speeches that reduced the day to campaign promises and sound bites. And then on the television, they showed different angles of 
the planes hitting the towers, the towers falling down and the people screaming and running from the dust cloud. That's the way they wanted to commemorate the day is by showing the most horrible, gruesome parts of it. And we couldn't leave because we were in this tight ball of a crowd. And they said, never forget, we'll never forget. And it occurred to me that day and for the 10 years since that never forget is as nuanced as everyone's feeling about the day itself. To some people, it's about the first responders and the work that they did and the people that helped and the way the neighborhood and the city and the country came together at the most trying time we've had in recent history. To some people, never forget means an empty chair at the dinner table. And to some people, it's a marketing slogan. And that's all it'll ever be. And so when I hear it, there's a mixture of sadness, fear, of regret, of guilt, and a little bit of revulsion. planes crashed into the World Trade Center, I was exactly where I was supposed to be, slogging my way through the first week of school. And no matter how veteran a teacher you are, the first week of school is tough. Besides the mountains of administrative paperwork, there are endless roster changes that creates this weird, hazy atmosphere of a, like a sea of blurry, nameless faces sitting in front of you. My colleague grabbed my arm as I entered the room. They want to kill all of us. Maybe she was right, but we didn't know who they were. And I really couldn't go there at that moment. I had less than three minutes to ready myself for a class of freshmen that I had met only the day before. And a teacher needs to be on the top of her game every day in the classroom. And I was struggling anyway to feel it that morning, long before those planes crashed. I had found out that my father was dying the night before. I felt like my world was ending anyway. You know, but teenagers, they think life only happens where they are. Although the unwritten part of a teacher's role is to draw a student in to the larger view of life. You know, because they need to grow towards that realization that some things are bigger than themselves. They need to be part of a community. Well, I know that freshmen are more sensitive than the stock market to anything that shakes their reality. In the first minutes after the planes crashed, there was so little information and so many theories. Surely these kids were going to have questions. How are they going to be reacting? What could I tell them that would be honest? Who had parents or friends who worked in the towers? Was I going to need to console them or prevent imagination from running wild? I found I needed to be everything to all of them. And nothing improved as the day droned on, except some classrooms, but not mine, had TVs. And the students were watching the same tragic loop of images. And then the office started calling the classrooms constantly because parents wanted their students at home with them. Both of my college-age daughters were home, 
classes canceled. And my husband was driving back from South Jersey. Everyone was safe. In the next couple of weeks, this tragic panorama spread into every crevice of our lives. My heart never knew where I wanted to be. Uh, Should I be home holding my daughters and husband close? Uh, Should I be that calm, strong image for my students? Or sometimes I just want to say, fuck it and go be with my dad. You know, this was the daddy who taught me how to swim, who taught me how to check a math problem by using a different color pencil, because then I'd see the problem differently. But my dad would never, ever say fuck. Well, as I watched Ground Zero smolder each day, my father grew weaker and weaker. But my freshman, I pushed to stay at the top of my game and I learned their quirkiness. I learned the scholars and the athletes and the artists. I learned their trigger points. They were growing up in a different world post 9-11. Well, my dad passed just before Christmas as the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree was decked out in red, white, and blue as both the nation and I tried to muster some holiday spirit. 20 years later, the day replays so clearly in my head, as does getting the news about my dad. There's no escaping the panorama that 9-11 created. It'll be part of all of us who experience that day forever. They say that adversity makes one stronger. I'm not so sure about that, but I know I'm different and hopefully kinder. It embodies so much sadness, even 20 years later. And yet the personal part has moved forward. Those freshmen are in their 30s. And today's freshmen, they were born long after 9-11. My daughters have husbands and children. And I often quote my dad with my grandchildren. And you know, there's some joy in that. Growing up in New York, the streets, the sidewalks were all a grid perfectly, you know, north, south, east, west. You always knew where you were and how to get wherever you needed to be. But I could choose to get lost in Central Park. I mean, it was a New York City girl's version, but magical hills and forests. And when it was time to go home, I could just look above the treetops and see familiar shapes of buildings and orient myself and be able to go home. In this tour, I saw those same buildings, but behind them, there were so many, not even skyscrapers, sky puncturers. And it was a shock. Reminded me of when the Twin Towers went up. We never called them the World Trade Center. It was the Twin Towers. It was about halfway through high school. And one thing we all agreed on in our art high school, we were very conscious of how things looked. But these were ugly. Later on, I read someone had compared them to the boxes that the Empire State Building would have come in. It 
was slightly cooler about a year later when Philippe Petit did his high wire walk between them. I was like, well, that's cool. But they still weren't inspiring to look at. But then after high school, I went to NYU for college in Greenwich Village. And after that, I uh, had a job where I helped open the first Mac part of JNR Computer World in Lower Manhattan. And in Greenwich Village in Lower Manhattan, there was not that grid. It was a wild mishmash, some streets from old New York, some from even older New Amsterdam. And it was very easy to get lost when you didn't want to. So at that time, I started to have a grudging fondness for the Twin Towers because they became my grown-up beacon that could lead me home. Well, I moved to Los Angeles, and in July of 2001, I visited New York for Macworld Expo. Thousands of people would come and congregate to celebrate and learn about the Macintosh computer. And I went downtown to JNR, where I had worked, to buy my first MP3 player. It was not good timing because in October that year, Apple announced and unveiled their iPod. So it was a few months before that. But I didn't know that then. And I was very excited about my MP3 player. And I thought, where can I go to sit and unwrap it? And I thought, well, I'm near the Twin Towers. And there's a plaza there which actually had been a terrible plaza built in such a way that the architects didn't consider the people who would be walking in the plaza. And it funneled gusts of wind, making little tornadoes. So sometimes people had to actually hold onto a rope when they were down there. But a couple of years before in 1999, there'd been a $12 million renovation of the whole plaza. I thought, okay, this is where I'll go. It was a beautiful day. I sat on a bench. I looked at the new planters, the stone benches all over. People had brought food and were eating it on the benches, like a a New York City style picnic. And there were musicians playing in the plaza. And it was lovely. I didn't have a camera with me, but I consciously said, I am going to take mental photographs of this beautiful place that I finally made peace with. The phone loudly woke us. It was still dark in Los Angeles. My mother said, turn on the TV. The news showed a plane. They they kept showing from different angles. I was trying to understand what I was seeing. And my mother said, the World Trade Center is gone. Anger that welled up in me had nothing to do with anyone who might have driven a plane or piloted a plane or or, or anything. It was anger and my mother, because I saw, yes, there are planes going into the building, but you don't say it's gone. And I said to her, it's not gone. Don't fucking say it's gone. And then the replay went further and I saw the impossible. And now I'd hurt her. I wanted to heal at a candlelight vigil that night. But in my neighborhood in California, where there was supposed to be one, all I heard was not people talking about healing. It was people going, USA, USA, with hate. I was able to go to my mother. She didn't make these plans because of what happened on 9-11. She'd already been planning to move to 
Las Vegas. So two weeks after I got on a plane, saw soldiers with guns in the shuttle and arrived in New York to help her pack up. After a few days, I made my way down to what was now being called Ground Zero. I had a camera with me this time. I took photographs as I went, seeing things that now are normal, but then were very strange. People wearing masks all over and smelling what I tried not to think of, but I knew what it was I was smelling. When I got to what was left of the buildings, not straight anymore, but at an angle, just at that moment, the sun was setting and hit what I saw, turning it golden, deep, bright, glowing. And then it set and everything was cold and dark. After that, I had no more family in New York until I did. My husband's son in one week lost his place to live, his girlfriend, his job, all unrelated, and said, well, I'm going to take this opportunity to start my life anew. And he flew across the country to New York, not knowing where he'd live, who he would know. And eight years ago in Brooklyn, on September 11th, his daughter Una was born. She is smart and funny and silly and kind. She's a new beginning. She'll have very different beacons home than I had. I'm so grateful that 9-11 is not just a death day, but a birthday. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to our four storytellers. Our storytellers, Francesca, Tracy, Anne, Mary, and Elena Beth. Check the show notes for upcoming events. We would love to see you there as either a participant or audience member. And of course, feel free to shoot us a message or say hello, add a comment or a question if you'd like. We want to hear from you. And that is all for episode number 98. Boom.